This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Today, what have you got in your loft that's a bit political and might be worth some money? We play Political Antiques Roadshow with the auctioneer who is selling off Betty Boothroyd's knickknacks. And we hear from the former BBC political editor who was the first presenter of Antiques Roadshow. Before that, we'll hear from James, Marriott and India Knight on the situation in the Middle East. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can join me for Politics Without the Boring Bits live on Times Radio. Listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio, weekdays from 10. Right, let's kick off today's episode as we always do on a Friday. Let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Keir Starmer's kids are the same as the rest of us. What's good about my kids is they don't give a staff that I'm leader of the Labour Party and they take the f*** out of me all of the time. We learned that Rishi Sunak has gone from railing against the 30-year political status quo I am here to end to insisting it's jolly good and long may it continue. The plan that is starting to deliver the long-term change that our country needs? Or do we go back to square one? We learn from Mark Drakeford that you can get away with breaking the speed limit if you are suffering from... Genuine confusion. We learn from Andrea Ledson that you have teeth from 18 months before you were born. In the opposition's proposal today, they're talking about supervised toothbrushing for three to five-year-olds. Now, I don't know if they don't know this, but actually you have teeth from before you're born. So if you don't get your supervised toothbrushing until you're three, at a minimum, that's about, your teeth are about four and a half years old. Talking to people of four and a half years old, we learned from four-year-old listener Cordelia what she thinks of Keir Starmer. I like him. Yeah? Do you know what his job it's is? Of his, yeah, it's because of his clothes. Uh, we learned that voters on our focus group aren't thrilled by the prospect of choosing between Sunak and Starmer. It's almost saying, you know, who's the best-looking guy in the Burns unit. We learned that Lindsay Hoyle thinks Keir Starmer's already in number 10. A very important topic, and I take it seriously. I hope members also wish to start taking it seriously. Prime Minister. Uh, 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 Mr Speaker. Sorry, what was that? Prime Minister. All of which means the main thing we learned this week is... New Year, new nonsense.
And that is what we learned this week. Now, it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. James is shaking his head at that. We had a vote, James. The I know, but this, this show isn't a democracy. You can't stop running it that, that way. Why it's not. You're in charge and I you should listen charge. to me. I'm in charge and it's staying. Uh, <laughs> anyway, good morning to you, James. Uh, hello, India. Hi, hi, good morning. I'm very happy that um, order has been restored. Good, I'm very pleased, I'm very pleased. Yeah, I'm, I'm in charge, and that's what I'm... I think we need an embarrassing uh, India clip. Has India said anything embarrassing or made you, any you inadvertent you sexual better, innuendos? You, no, you can't stop battering away at your I'm going to try and... Um, not, not going to happen. I'm going to try and force India to do sexual innuendos. It was, um, it was, on the, it was with no you, thanks. wasn't it? We, we were talking about eating in the bath. Yeah. And somebody had a baguette, and I said... I. Committed a double on top. That let's do that. That's yeah. Flex very said, poorly you know I mean? on you. Somebody said they were eating a baguette in the bath, and I said you didn't want that because I've, I've you might dip your end in or something. I've tried to erase that episode <laughs> from my mind. <laughs> right, so let's concentrate because there's lots of important news around. Um, uh, overnight, we got the news of these airstrikes on Houthis uh, after they they were targeting targeting ships in the Red Sea. Somewhat inevitably, uh, the Lib Dems and the SNP are calling for Parliament to be recalled. We've just heard in the last few minutes, Lindsay Hoyle is saying he's very happy to facilitate the recall of Parliament. Um, India, what, what do you make of this? Because it's a sort of the, this convention that Parliament must have its say, must vote before Britain commits any sort of military action. It's sort of emerged off the back of Iraq and so on. Um, but but do, do, should should the Prime Minister ultimately be able to do this without? asking the Lib Dems first? Yes, I think he should. Um, it's kind of the point of being Prime Minister, isn't it? Um, I th- obviously, if there's a kind of going-to-war situation, then of course Parliament should be recalled. But in this particular instance, time is obviously a factor. It takes a while to recall Parliament. Um, they're back on Monday anyway. <clears throat> I think it's fine in this instance to have just gone ahead, taken the decision and done it. What do you think, Joyce? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the the thing that's hanging in everyone's mind, obviously, is the uh, airstrike on Syria that never happened. That, mm. you know, um, Parliament was recalled when David Cameron wanted to make an airstrike on, on, on Syria, you know, with that, with those lessons of the Iraq war kind of hanging, hanging in the back of his mind. Ed Miliband objected. And then, you know, we all think, had we intervened in Syria at that point, might have we averted this kind of long and horrible um, civil war, which may very, 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 may very well have been the case. And, yeah, there is often a case for, you know, we've elected the Prime Minister to make decisions like this. You know, that's one of the things that you imagine voters are considering when they're when they're voting. Is this someone we trust to, you know, intervene yeah. decisively? And that's one of the powers that you get as Prime Minister. It's not like in, you know, in America where, you know, we have to consult, the President has to consult Congress. Yeah. And I suppose it's, it's also, to some extent, these things, you want the element of surprise. Uh, <laughs> that actually, you know, clearly it was likely to come, but, but you want if you are launching military, I'm not a military strategist myself, uh, but if you are launching military action, the element of surprise and not laying out all of yeah. your plans to uh, mm. to all the strategy. It's interesting, Dave's just got in touch saying, uh, David Berry says, surely in this day and age, Parliament can be recalled exceptionally online. You could have a Zoom recall, um, uh, which is not a bad idea, I suppose. Because yeah. they did do that during the, I think they might have dismantled all of the technology that they had. And I, I mean, I by no means think it's kind of obvious that Parliament should or should, it's probably a case-by-case basis, I yeah. think, isn't it? Because every intervention will be of a different magnitude and there'll be points at which something becomes so big that obviously we'd want Parliament to have a say because the repercussions, you know, for the country, for the economy, for the world, 
we might not want one person taking that decision alone. I think it's got to be in a case by case basis. I suppose the other the other thing uh, that this this uh, intervention now demonstrates India is just how much politics has changed. That you've got Keir Starmer, you know, not a not a cigarette paper between him and the uh, and the and the mm. the Conservative Prime Minister in a way that. You know, if Jeremy Corbyn was still Prime Minister, it might be... Still Prime Minister, blimey. If Jeremy Corbyn was still uh, leader of the Labour Party, I imagine he'd have a very different... Yeah, take. absolutely. Imagine that. God. Um, yes, no, there isn't a cigarette paper between them. And and um, I suppose, again, in these sorts of circumstances, that's probably quite a good thing, you know, to have general accord and to be able to go on, to to be able to... As it were, strike decisively. I don't mean literally strike decisively. Also, although there's that too. And this is also one of those moments where Keir Starmer knows that he can show that he's not Jeremy Corbyn by, yeah, you know, obviously yeah. taking the non-Jeremy Corbyn stance. And I think that that text message that was sent to Labour MPs saying, you know, don't say anything on social media, stick to the line um, that we saw coming out earlier. He's, you know, this is a very clear opportunity for him. Yeah, I guess like the stuff over the Gaza ceasefire earlier, where he can just absolutely firmly distinguish himself in the public's mind from from Jeremy Corbyn. It's yeah, it's interesting. We, we, we wait to see. I mean, I suspect there'll be lots of people all over the weekend calling for Parliament to be recalled, and before you know it, it'll be Monday and they'll be back anyway. Um, James, let's talk about your column this week. Um, why don't you explain what it said, rather yeah. than me trying to... <laughs> trying well, to, whether, to, whether I'm going to do um, a good job of explaining my own column this week... Uh, <laughs> Maybe, it's maybe sort of the the, the enlightenment the, the enlightenment discuss. Yes, basically in yeah. eight hundred words. Go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I am really I don't know. One of the kind of big themes that fascinates me at the moment is all these people who are very upset that you know the West lacks confidence that in the past we really believed in ourselves and we backed our values and you know I think there's a lot of anxiety among liberals in the West that illiberal countries you know like China or Russia have a lot of confidence in their values and in what they stand for in a way that the West is just this kind of decadent mess of doubt and no one can make their minds up and everyone's sort of infighting and arguing over culture war stuff. And then there's a real, you know, that's something that Putin's mentioned a lot, of the, you know, the, um, out of the Ukraine war, who's giving these speeches calling the West kind of dec this decadent mess compared to, you know, these kind of firm Russian values. And I think this has been picked up by a lot of, this anxiety has been picked up by a lot of liberals. And the point of my column actually was that if you look at our history, probably the greatest virtues of, you know, Western culture, if you want to call it that, are doubt, anxiety, self-hatred. And in my column, I was just kind of going back through some, I thought, some kind of fun historical examples of the way that, you know, our history is filled with people saying, oh, the, you know, we have the Industrial Revolution. Oh, it's terrible. Um, you know, everyone think, you know, a lot of people think imperialism was marvellous in the 19th century, but also we forget that lots of people who thought it was terrible. And we've always been fighting ourselves. And that's not a modern thing that we should be worried about. It might actually be our biggest strength. If that does that made sense, I think Hopefully. so. Okay, good. Um, uh, what did you what, what did you think? India? And I, I suppose it was interesting. That there was a line in in, uh, in James Collins where he said, "You know, the, the causation and correlation of us. Do we are we gloomy because th exactly? Yeah, are we are we gloomy because um, you know things are going terribly wrong, or is the fact that we're gloomy making things going terribly? Yes. making things go Would wrong. Would it help if we cheered up, India? I'm all for cheering up. <clears throat> um, I th I think the West is a bit broken. I think whichever way you spin it, the current West is maybe not quite what it was. Um, and I completely agree with James that you need friction and discord and 
argumentativeness and, and discontentment to come up with interesting new ideas. So that's fine. That's all good. There was a thing... Um, there was a thing earlier this week, or maybe even yesterday, about young people voting for strongmen. Like, what, what was it? Was it a poll? Was it a thing? It's yes, sort no, of on the edge there's, of... been, there's been a few surveys which show that, that young people sort of like the idea of the strongman. Yeah, know, like, there, was, there was... Maybe a dictatorship might be better. There was one, there was one last year, wasn't it, that said, you know, do you think it should, we should have a strong leader who isn't bound by parliament or something? And a lot of people apparently agreed with that. Yeah, and there was one two, three days ago, I think, as well... Um, which is disturbing and also quite interesting. So, yeah, I, I kind of agree with James's column, but I do, I think the West is more broken than, than he suggests. So what should we do about it, James? What should we do about it? Well, uh, I guess on the basis of my column, you know, keep arguing, keep fighting. Self-doubt isn't anything new. And often that's the thing that, you know, because we're always relitigating our values and always asking questions about our institutions and stuff, that's what allows us to develop. And if we were just full of blithe confidence, which, you know, is what a lot of autocracies want, you know, everyone has to believe in the party and the institutions of the party, then you don't really change and that makes you quite brittle. I think where kind of the argumentativeness makes us supple. Although I think there is obviously a case that we are, you know, you know, a healthy argument can become, can become polarisation. Although I have to say, one thing I'm a bit optimistic about is all that stuff about young people wanting to vote for authoritarian leaders... I'm always a bit sceptical about those surveys because I think I've seen stuff that's found, you know, actually to support for democracy is quite strong. And I sometimes wonder, are those questions being asked in a way that is meant to elicit a slightly shocking answer? And I don't know. I'm never, I'm always a bit cautious whether you can actually trust those those alarming sounding reports. Yeah, so so this is the one that came out, it, this was last September, there was an international survey in 30 countries, found 86% of people overall preferred to live in a democratic state. And only 20% thought authoritarian regimes are more capable of delivering what citizens want. But among uh, 18 to 35 year olds, only 57% thought uh, democracy was preferable, uh, rising to 71% of those over the age of 56. So, yeah. And they have a point because, in terms of this radio show at least, the democratic vote has not been doing well for me. And I, fa- I favour an authoritarian <laughs> regime, especially with regards to what clips we play beforehand. Do you? Yeah. yeah. But I, but, no, but that is what you've got. You have got an authoritarian regime. No, you bent you bent the will of the people. You didn't. No, but it just happened. I know, but but it also happened to agree with me. No, you were you were saying to me at the beginning of this year maybe we'll get rid of the horrible, um, embarrassing <laughs> clip, and then people voted and you just couldn't, you know, felt okay, stand up to your listeners. I can't believe it. That we know but, who really runs this show. We're there, we're there. <laughs> the other thing I thought was interesting in your, your column this this idea of people doing analysis. Using AI, feeding how yeah. many books was it? Which I'm so sca- I'm so skeptical of. This was sort of yeah. thousands of books from the last two hundred, four hundred. This years. was this was where it started, and this is the kind of fashionable new way to do history. Is that these economists, um, the study at a German university, had fed yeah like almost two hundred thousand books into an algorithm, and the algorithm was supposed to pick up words you know about positivity and progress and is everything going marvelously, and allegedly this algorithm would discern trends in all these books which would tell them what the trends in the wider culture were. And the argument of this paper was that we'd been getting more and more kind of boosterish and positive throughout the 18th century and more optimistic about technology. And it was those sentiments that had allegedly been technologically plucked out of these books that were probably responsible for us having the Industrial Revolution and becoming a world power. And after a certain point, I think, you know, when you've got one wiggly line, which allegedly explains like a century's worth of human history, I just get a bit sceptical. And I guess the other part of my column was just saying, you know, old-fashioned history, actually reading books and asking which books are more influential than other books and what people are, you know, 
thinking other than what an algorithm says is sometimes better. And but also just because po- an algorithm the doesn't point mean that it's you right. Made was that if you did that fed into your uh, algorithm, the AI bot, all the all of the published works in North Korea, you might think it was a lovely place. to Yeah, live. exactly. Um, and so books it, on the books. On it everything. goes back to the the whole point that what you get out is only as good as what you've put into it. Yeah, and, and there was some. Uh, you could have two books published. You know, well, well, you know, think last year you've had a book I don't know published by I don't know James O'Brien saying the whole country's going to the dogs, and a book published by I don't know Nadine Doyce saying that it isn't. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, so, exactly. And it's 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 yeah. By and there's the, some there's some great comments from the readers below the line saying you know well all the kind of you know peasants having horrible lives who weren't writing books about how depressed they felt in the 18th century. None of that is picked up by a survey, so that doesn't mean that everyone's feeling really positive. You know, if you're living in a slum in the Industrial Revolution, you're not writing a book about it, but you yeah. probably do feel pretty depressed. So the thing is very flawed, and I don't know, I think people are kind of too love to think that algorithms can tell us everything. Yeah. Disapprove. Yeah, quite right. Uh, <laughs> I certainly don't want us to be replaced by, uh, by AI. Uh, right, uh, uh, let's move on, because I want to talk about... I've got a sort of vested interest in this. Um, uh, do, uh, do the accents uh, used in adverts, are they a problem? Apparently, Channel 4 has found that TV adverts are using class and accents in stereotypical ways. Apparently, Scottish accents are used for bank ads. It says because of the stereotype is they're tight with money. I thought it was just because they were sort of seen as reassuring and trustworthy. Uh, but if you want a character in an advert to seem stupid, they give them a West Country accent, which obviously I find deeply offensive, although I don't have a West Country accent myself. Uh, but some of, lots of my family do. Uh, have you noticed this? It's English butter through and through. Through and through! Tasty, fresh and creamy too. Creamy too. Oh, you'll, you'll never put a better bit of butter on your knife. And so the toast is country life. <laughs> what do you think, India? Should, should people stop treating <laughs> West Country folk as, I don't know, thick yokels? It's not just West Country folk. folk. I think um, I think accents are used in a really kind of old-fashioned seeming way still. So, West, you know, you have <clears throat> rural accents that are supposed to indicate a kind of deep well of folk wisdom. You have Scottish accents, which are supposed to indicate either violence or financial prudence, fiscal prudence. You have people from the southeast denoting kind of snootiness and kind of artsy fartsiness and it's all it's all a bit reductive um so and then you have northern you know generic northern accents denouncing speaking as you uh, meaning denoting speaking as you find so yeah it is all very reductive and i would quite like people to play around with the accents and have you know a voiceover for waitrose in a in a in a west country accent why not or you know this is not just food. This is M and S food. I think you've That's got a right. second career. Yeah, I could do that, couldn't I? Um, yeah, it is amazing that you know, decades after we finally decided that newsreaders don't have to speak in RP and mm-hmm. can have regional accents in the news, these stereotypes are so ingrained. Uh, it's interesting what India says about you know uh, rural versus um, town accents. I think I once read a study saying that when you ask people to list their favourite British accents from uh, most favourite to least favourite. Yeah. The ones that people like most tend to be rural, and the ones that people object to are Cockney, Liverpool, Birmingham, because yeah, they yeah. kind of they make you think of like you know depressing city life. Whereas people hear Yorkshire, which I think is very popular, you think of rolling dales and stuff. But then why does why does the West Country fall fall foul of that? It, well, West that's Country weird, is also it? pirates, which is quite cool. Pirates always kind of talk that's a bit true. West Country, don't they? <laughs> so you know that's something that's. 
Oh my yeah, God. I, I, this, um, you, why, I always enjoy the next John Coulthorne. There was a, when I was at the West of what he used, and I think the Taunton Times thing, there was a story about, I think, some sort of renegade self styled paramilitary group that didn't like second homes uh, in Cornwall, and there's like, tried to set fire to them or, you know, break into them or whatever, and they were dubbed the URA. <laughs> Uh, which is uh, dubbed obviously by like a, a tabloid <laughs> headline writer rather than anyone else, but uh, I always, I always particularly enjoyed that. Um, uh, somebody's just got in touch, actually pointing out precisely the point that I, uh, Matt in Nottingham says, Matt, you not having a West Country accent shows that it is important. Presumably, you chose not to have one. You wouldn't be, inf- you wouldn't be the influential media kingpin that you are if you spoke like the Wurzels. It's interesting. What's my, happened to your accent? Has your accent naturally eroded with no, being I've in never, London? I never. No, I never. I've never. You as never far as I one. know, I don't think I've ever been. Because my my brother is a bit more, and I've got like uncles and cousins and things who are quite. And if I go back to Somerset, I will slightly, slightly drift into it. Do they think that mm. you sound like you're from London now? Do they? No, no, no. Because I think I've always sounded like this. I think it's a lot of it to do with your sort of friends at school. Yeah, that's a good point. I um, think I embarrassingly, I used to have a little bit of a Geordie accent. At oh school, yeah, that's true. You, yeah. And I literally made a conscious effort to get rid of it, which is. I'm very ashamed of in hindsight. Indian Night and James Barrett there. Of course, you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next is the Political Antiques Roadshow. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. The Big Thing Welcome to Antiques Roadshow Without the Boring Bits Yeah, we're not looking at any of your Chippendale chairs or carriage clocks that you found in your granny's attic today No, we're only interested in your political memorabilia Former Common Speaker Betty Boothroy's possessions are being auctioned for charity. Alongside items of jewellery, including a diamond ring that could be worth £100,000, there are some great bits of political memorabilia too, including a souvenir programme from the inauguration of John F. Kennedy, signed by 
John F. Kennedy, and framed photos of her meetings with the likes of Bill Clinton and Nelson Mandela. In a moment, we'll hear from the man who's holding the auction. He's, been, he's brought some of it in. He's brought in some of the stuff. I'm excited about this. And uh, then we're going to be joined by some of you, uh, listeners, and uh, even, a, you might even throw an MP as well. Labour MP Jess Phillips is going to pop up uh, with some of your political memorabilia, and we're going to get it valued live on air. Uh, will Jess Phillips be pleasantly surprised to learn uh, that what she's got is worth a fortune or crust to discover it's not really worth anything? But before that, uh, what better place to start than with the very first presenter of Antiques Roadshow back in 1979? Bruce Barker went on to be a political editor for the BBC for years uh, in, the, in the South. But first of all, I would, let's go right back to the birth of Antiques Roadshow and how he got the job. Well, firstly, not knowing anything about antiques, basically, I did a show on BBC One called Badger Watch, which was the pre-runner, if you like, of all the all the, the watches that have gone on, Spring Watch and Autumn Watch and all that. And we were watch, looking at badgers at 10 o'clock at night through infrared cameras. And, and, and the big thing was that they'd never used infrared cameras before and all of that. A producer in Bristol saw me doing that and a couple of days afterwards i mean it was all live and so on a couple of days after that he uh, phoned me up from bristol and i was living in winchester could i come down and see you bruce and i said yeah uh, what about oh, i'll tell you when i get there so when he got there he said look um i i've been touring um west country uh, cities like like bristol and exeter and and plymouth and the uh, um auction houses like Sotheby's, Christie's, Phillips, Bonhams are holding these things called roadshows where they have people uh, who come in, have their stuff valued free. And he said, I've been watching their reactions, you know, when it's worth a lot, they're delighted, but when it's worth sweet FA, they're all a bit cross and tearful and so on, you know. And I said, yes, yeah, so... Uh, he said, well, I, you know, would it, do you think it would make a good programme? And I said, well, yeah, I think it probably would. So um, what have I got to do with that? He said, well, I'd like you to help me do it, put it together, devise it, and then be the presenter. Now, uh, uh, And I'd like you to be the presenter and Arthur Negus, whom your listeners will remember, as the expert. So he was 70, I was 35, you know, he was double my <laughs> age. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, that, that was the duo. And then we did the um, pilot in, in Hereford. And so how long were you then the presenter of Antiques Roadshow for? Well, I only did a couple of years because I'm a journalist and I was a freelance like most people in the BBC were then. I had a day job. I was doing the, the BBC South Today every night in, I think, your neck of the woods, probably, in, in, in Hampshire. Yeah. And we didn't, I didn't know whether the road show was going to carry on or whatever. And I had to make a decision. Say, so, you know, do I, do I actually do these other things uh, or do I stick with, with, um, with news and current affairs and so on? So I stuck with news and current affairs. I mean, I don't regret it because I, I ended up as <laughs> BBC South's political editor and my other love was politics, and I ended up as as a member of the press gallery and and so on. And I can't think of anything I would have wanted to do other than that. We'll come to memorabilia in a moment, but you picked up a lot of certainly political experience and anecdotes along the way, interviewing every prime minister from Eden to Cameron. That's a pretty well, yeah. you know both both slightly responsible for for. for catastrophic foreign policy decisions 
they weren't, they weren't in office at the time, some of them. I mean, you know, so not that old. But, yeah, uh, some of them were strange. I mean, I, I first interviewed Ted Heath, actually, when he's leader of the opposition, and that was in Southampton, and I went down to meet him outside the building, which is the old Southwestern house there, which was the Cunard building where the BBC was, and met him, got in the lift. I got stuck in the lift with him. <laughs> and, and how was that? Cause he, he wasn't necessarily a man known for his interpersonal uh, no. skills well i was just about to say he's not exactly this you know there are people that you might want to be stuck in a lift with but he's not one of them is he or wasn't uh, he just didn't want to say anything it was only about three minutes when we got sort of hauled up and got out of the lift you know but um i mean you know what a way to start eh? <laughs> with him that that's pretty extraordinary it's pretty extraordinary and your so your your memories of that period of covering politics for such a long time and i know from when i was the sort of political editor for the western body news when you've got your own patch particularly when it suddenly becomes quite an interesting patch politically, you do actually get more access to some of these leaders of the opposition and prime ministers than you do if you're a sort of middle-ranking lobby journalist on a national newspaper. So you must have, you know, you saw them all up close and personal. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, they, they all wanted to be on, t- on, on television. Although prime ministers, actually, before... I don't know when 1990s didn't actually think they had to go on television. They, you know, they did, they did panorama perhaps, and then they did the the party conferences. And the party conferences, of course, in those days were huge things. I know covered by BBC One Live and everything else because that was the one time the public actually got to see not only the prime minister but the members of the cabinet uh, or, or shadow cabinet or whatever because Parliament itself wasn't being televised either. So the impact of doing interviews with people like like me and uh, and uh, and others was actually greater than it is now because people are actually seeing the politicians of the or rarely you know or the first time even. You, did you then keep an interest in antiques memorabilia? Did you collect any political memorabilia along the way? I mean, I've got. I, I was an anorak when I was when, when I was a boy, and I used to stand outside <laughs> stand outside. Uh, Downing Street in those days you could I mean there was no barrier yeah. or anything in fact I, later on when I had, I did that as a boy when I when I you know could drive a car I remember driving the car up there showing my family and driving out again but I, I used to write to people like Churchill you know and wish him a happy birthday and, and so on and I'd get a letter back but it was I think it was a copy a copy you know a photocopy and so on but I wrote asking uh, Anthony Eden in 19 I've got it here in front of me in 1955 for his autograph uh, you know because we used to collect autographs in those days too so what was i about 13 or so 1955 dear master parker the prime minister has asked me to send you the enclosed autograph with his best wishes yours sincerely somebody otto private secretary master brw parker and there's his there's his autograph you know (laughs) and it's so interesting isn't it because these days people might get a selfie if they bump into someone but then what you do with that is just on your phone it's not you know, yeah. the, the physical connection to the person that you're trying to connect with doesn't exist in quite the same way. With photographs are so I, interesting. I prize that, but I also prize I've got hanging up in my study here a letter from Tony Blair when I retired from the BBC, a long letter, you know, personal letter saying thanks very much for what you've done and and all of that. I mean, that was uh, and that's for me that was it was, was presented to me at my leaving dinner, and I thought, oh my. My God, that's quite something. So that's sort of memorabilia. You you haven't taken your you haven't combined your two interests to the extent of buying memorabilia. You know this this Betty Boothroyd auction, which got us thinking about all this. You're not you're not going to fork out and start bidding for some of these items. 
Well, no, I mean, I've been looking at the catalogue. I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, I know there's a dispatch box and so on, but I mean, there's a Buckingham Palace shower cap uh, amongst the items here. I mean, it, it raises so many questions. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how, how did she get a Buckingham Palace shower cap? Was she, did she stay there? You know, did she use the bathroom? I mean, presumably she wanted to go to the loo at some point. I don't know if she was there for, a, for some meeting or other, but a shower cap. You know, did it have a royal cipher on it, or it must do? It, it must be listed like that. Well, the estimated price is thirty to fifty pounds. But I mean, the next question is, who's going to buy something like that? Um, yeah, because I suppose it's not the same it? as being able to say, "Look, this is a this is a sign, this is an autograph or something." This is a Buckingham Palace shower clap once owned by Betty Boothroyd for thirty yeah, pounds. I mean, I, mean, I suppose. Yeah, it, but the big, suppose... big questions are, what does she? do with it i mean did, did she wear it <laughs> did she wear maybe, maybe it's worth more if she actually wore well, it. there's something else there's something else in the list here you know a collection of frog related items including two flat kermits paper toad with mortarboard and various enamel frog boxes <laughs> Bruce, you don't sound very persuaded you don't if i, if I were you i'd stick no. with your eden uh your eden autograph well uh, i wouldn't mind i wouldn't mind the letter from blair that's, oh, I think yeah, that might box. go for, uh, yeah, Red Box. Yeah. I know a Red Box would be quite good, but I think that might go for quite a lot more. Uh, well, listen, uh, Bruce, it's been lovely to speak to you. There's nothing better when the um, the guest booking jackpot hits, when we find the first presenter of the Antics Roadshow, who then became uh, a longstanding political editor and uh, member, of the, uh, member of the political press gallery. Bruce Parker, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. Very kind of you. Enjoyed it very much. And I'm joined now in the studio by Thomas Forrester from Special Auction Services. He's auctioning off items belonging to uh, the former Commons Speaker, Baroness Betty Boothroyd. And you've brought some things in. Thomas, good to see you. Good to see you, Matt. Yeah. So, I can see you've got lots of things in front of you. What, yeah. what, what have you got? So, uh, to start off, I've got the Betty Boothroyd dispatch box. It is black uh, leather, uh, opens uh, quite extraordinarily from... Uh, the base, actually, because the handle's up here. Yeah, like, so it's like a ministerial, sort of like the yeah. budget box. But yeah, like the budget box. But it's black rather, but it than, is black. Uh, rather than red that most people yeah. are more used to. the speaker's to. box. Yeah. Uh, and inside the speaker's box is a Dunhill little wallet. And inside the wallet are her business cards. Very nice. Yeah, the Right Honourable Baroness Boothroyd O.M., and so does that all come together? That, that comes as a lot. Comes as a lot. Now, the, the one issue I have, and um, with this, even with her own elastic bands yeah. in there and a sort of old elastic band at the back, I haven't yeah. touched anything, cleaned yeah. it up. Um, everybody's asking, where's the key? Is there not a key? I've cl- I cleared the house. I went through her desk. I couldn't find the key. So you can't really carry it by the handle because all the bits will fall out. Exactly. <laughs> However... Yeah. You can get keys cut. Okay. You could go to Brahma here yeah. in London or Chubb and they will sort you they'll, out. They'll do one. Mm. And what, how much is, do you expect that to go for when it does go into a I think it's going to go for quite a lot of money. I've been quite conservative, I've said, you know, in the mid hundreds, but I reckon it's going to be maybe £2,000. Wow. I think so. I think. I think it's going to go four figures easily. And what else have you got there? If that's well, a bit much for people. Well, well, if it's a bit much for people, I have got her. Portcullis brooch. Her diamond set, 18 karat gold, portcullis brooch. Can I have a look at that? I promise I won't put it in my pocket. No, it's fine, it's fine. So this is worn, she had three of them. 
She had an early Edwardian one, which is 15 karat gold, and 15 karat gold stopped being essayed in about 1932. But this is a modern 18 karat gold one with diamonds to the crown and to the portcullis itself. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of bling on there. And this, she, you, you can see this in lots of photos that she had taken. Yeah, yeah portraits, this was worn yeah, yeah. all the time. Um, you know, here so... Is that the UN she's wearing? That's the, the UN. And how how much are we talking for this one? Because uh, presumably it's got just an intrinsic value because it's gold and diamonds yeah, with, an, yeah, with yeah. an added sort of Betty Booth voice yeah. bid on top. Absolutely. Um, if you ask any of our jewellery dealers, what's it weigh? That's all they're interested yeah. in. Yeah. Um, no, it's worth about twelve to eighteen hundred pounds. Is it? Yeah. Well, I want to give that back to you before I drop oh, okay. coffee. Well, no, it, 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 it's all right. I don't want to wander right. off. What is it? I don't want to wander off. Um, uh, and um, anything else you've got? You've got, you've got, got lots loads of things. Of loads of stuff. Loads of stuff. So I'm, I'm really intrigued. I love old photographs. Yeah. And we've all got old photographs. And we have got a plethora of photographs relating to uh, her ladyship. Um, but I think some of the most interesting ones are the early ones. Mm. So here's a selection of... This is her... On the in America on the Kennedy campaign, yeah, uh, and that's her in Capitol Hill there, looking fabulous. Here she is uh, at her desk, looking you know, head in hands, yeah, head in <laughs> hands, looking absolutely you know uh, uh, spaced out. And another one there. Um, while I was going through them, I found them here, her with Ho Chi Minh. Wow. Yeah, have a look at that. I mean, it's a reminder, actually, because people sort of really would just remember as being in the chair in the House of Commons, but what a life um, and a political career that she... Uh, Bobby she Kennedy? Enjoyed. Well, yeah, so I want to ask about the Kennedys, because it's not just that she worked on the campaign. What, what's the... I mean, is it, is it the prize lot in terms of <laughs> what it's going to go for? The... the the, the The programme from the inauguration. You've brought it in? I have. Yes, <gasps> I have. Can I have a look at it? Of course you can. My goodness. So it's a limited edition. Yeah. It is much loved because it's so worn. So this is the... So it says on the front, the official inaugural programme, January the 20th, 1961. Uh, it's the programme from JFK's inauguration. Yeah. Um, and you've just... Yeah, the signature's just there on your... When you've just turned over, that one there. There. <gasps> to the dedication. Wow. Yeah. And it's a souvenir programme because the the... Moroccan leather, or the leather as we yeah. call it, has been embossed Betty Boothroyd. Yes, so it's got yeah. her sort of... Yeah, and it's a limited edition one. So it's two Betty Boothroyd with very it's, best wishes? Yeah, very best wishes. John Kennedy? Yeah. That's properly good, isn't it? That is properly but good. But you're so right, it's sort of, it's almost falling to pieces. I haven't broken it. It's no, almost no, no. falling to pieces. <laughs> which does suggest that she was, you know, keen to get it out of the jaw and show people and, and, and all of that. I'm convinced. I mean, I went through her bookcase... Uh, when I was clearing the property, uh, we went there like three or four times yeah. clearing and, and I was going through the bookcase because quite a few books there dedicated. There's one from Barbara Castle about her meteoric rise and there's John Major and you know, it's just really interesting. And then in, in sort of the, the larger volumes, this was slipped in and I pulled it I went, Really? It was like one of those moments, yeah, you know, yeah, it was yeah. an Indiana Jones moment. Really? So, so how much is this going to go for, do you think? I, well, there's quite a bit of interest. Um, I think it's going to go for maybe 1,200 to 1,500. I only estimated at 30, oh, three to 500. Well, JF, we don't know. Got JFK and, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot of watchers online watching. It's a live auction, but yeah, we yeah. can see the pre-auction interest. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to be quite popular. I shall give it back to you so I don't break it. Now, because we knew you were coming in, and we know that the sort of people who listen to the show are the sort of people who might have... Uh, other political memorabilia. So many people have sent things in, so we're going to try and get through as many as we can. <laughs> Joining us in the studio is Seth, 
Um, and I said, what have you brought in? I have Gladstone's dispatch box from the 1850s when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now, when you tweeted this to me this week, <laughs> I thought, that can't be right. But you really have. Yeah, and you brought it in. Yeah. So it's a big... It looks very different. So it's, the, it's the, an early dispatch box. It's yeah, so it the looks days. different to the, the, the Betty Boothwood one. It's yeah. the sort of same as we're familiar with, the sort of ministerial box. This looks more like a sort of brown leather satchel. And, and these literally are built for dispatches on horseback. I mean, that's the way that they're built. So it's, yeah. it's very different from that. Um, I can open it up. You'll see it's made of calf skin. It's a very unusual sort of thing. Um, but yes, yeah, very rustic. What's that? The, the note is from the last time it was auctioned. Well, I bought it from the estate of Lord Avebury, the Lib Dem peer. Yeah. Um, he bought it when he was a Liberal MP in the 1960s from the grandson of a Gladstone family friend has been fully authenticated at that date. And that was describing the contents of it as it was then. So it says, the leather dispatch box is understood to have been Mr Gladstone's when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. There was a label on the box with his name on, written, I understand, in his own handwriting. And there is the label. Yes, it says Fask, which is the name of his father's castle in Scotland. So Gladstone wrote that himself? Yes, that, that's his it? handwriting. If you see a signature, it matches up perfectly. So how old was this? 170-ish years old. Oh, is it not in bad, Nick? <laughs> it was in quite good. So, I suppose the big question is, Thomas. Yes. Well, can you, will you tell us how much you paid for it? Yes. Do, do you want to guess first, or do, do, we, do we play this game? <laughs> I, I can tell you what the valuation was that yeah. I was given and what I paid for it. I don't know if you've got a... Well, I think... Gladstone is a important political character. Yeah. Um, certainly, through many, uh, many sales, I've sold bits of Gladstone. I've sold carte de visites, I've sold signatures. I've even sold a chipping of wood, which was chopped by Gladstone's <laughs> axe and made into an inkwell. Yeah. So there is a lot of interest, yeah. but actually having a political item, not a bit of ephemera. Yeah. So this is, you know, was used by him, as you say, in on his, the side of a in hall. His role, rather in his role, just role. something that passed through his life. So yeah. that adds even more yeah. value to it. So I think at auction, in the right auction, not in a general yeah. sale on Bodmin Moor, no offence to yeah. Bodmin, but, you know, on a wet Tuesday afternoon, um, the internet makes all the difference, but I reckon that's going to be at least three to 5,000 now. Well, um, I thought the valuation was low ball, and the valuation was two to 400 pounds, and I paid 300 pounds for it. <gasps> wow, yes. 300 pounds? Yes. How long ago? <laughs> two years ago. Oh, you've done very well there. <laughs> you've done very well. I mean, just the, well, just the signature would be I'll, worth I'll give you an idea of how lowball yeah. I think it is. That in the same sale, I was very tempted by a four-foot-tall statue of Gladstone. Yeah. And the only reason I didn't buy it is I couldn't find anywhere to keep it. I live in a first-floor <laughs> flat with creaky wooden floorboards. Yeah, but that's hold. quite weird to have. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. But that's amazing. amazing. But, but I mentioned that because the valuation on that was about £1,000. It went to auction and it sold for £15,000. Well, I, I think actually then I'm justified in so saying that as well. Yes, you are fully justified. Doing that auction, yeah. then what they were doing, <laughs> and you were very lucky that nobody else it, knew either. It yeah. was a private sale, it, yeah. 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 So, presumably, you now wouldn't part with it. No, but I, I'm very happy to, I mean, um, put it on sort of general display yeah, yeah, in yeah. terms of you know, long term loans and so on. Yeah. I'd love people to see it, Be able to see it. enjoy it, yeah. yeah. Uh, right, very good. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming in with that, Seth. Now we can speak to uh, Jess Phillips, uh, who is obviously Labour MP, is on the line because Jess, you, 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 you morning, morning, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. So what have you got? 
so yeah, when I saw your tweet, I put up. So I have a compact um, that is in not particularly good nick. Um, it looks slightly battered, like a, a powder compact that a, you know classically women would have that you put reuse powder in. That was sent to me by a Canadian man from Canada. He sent it all the way from Canada, and he'd found it in I think a car boot or a sale in in Wales when he'd been on holiday. But when you open it up, it is um, it says E Braddock. MP, West Derby Labour Party, the 6th of the 2nd, 1948. And it is the compact that belonged to Bessie Braddock, uh, who was one of, uh, she was a Labour MP, uh, and she was one of like the first sort of like 10 women ever elected to um, Parliament. Um, and in certainly from the point of view of the Labour Party is seen as being like this sort of massive icon. There's a massive statue of her in Liverpool. She was a proper like sort of icon of women in politics. Uh, in fact, Johnny Reynolds, uh, the shadow business uh, secretary in the Labour Party, his daughter is called Bessie, named after Bessie yeah. Braddock. Wow. So, Thomas, it, it's not in the best of condition. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> no, no, just, but could you just... Show it to the camera yeah, again. Yeah, hold it up again on the Zoom, Jeff. Are we going to get it oh. again? It looked like it was sort of brass, yeah. base metal. Yeah. It does look brass, yeah. It does look brass. She uh, was brassy, so... <laughs> <laughs> and, well, being, you know, a staunch Labour MP, and she was a member of the Communist Party to begin with, wasn't she, in the 20s? She was, yeah. So she wouldn't have had... She wouldn't have had anything too... Uh, uh, glitzy and sort of you know, non-ferrous metal, you know, gold and silver. Um, that would be a bit too much. But but in brass, the actual compact itself is relatively collectible, but not that valuable. People like yeah. to collect compacts. They do. We see them all the time. But yeah. that provenance makes all the difference. So, so if Jess were to part with it, if she were to part with it, which I'd advise... What would you value to, it at? I don't think I'd go stronger than two to three hundred pounds. Okay. Yeah, no That's not bad that for something really. somebody found in a car boot sale. And what about if you had an engraved Jess Phillips compact? How much would that go for? Oh, that is <laughs> just going to be priceless. <laughs> <laughs> Jess Phillips never powders her nose, so... Well, I you mean, need to start. I know. Start. I, I mean, it'll just be like Rimmel. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> just, just write your name. <laughs> just write your name on the back of a ribbon. Well, just thank you for coming on and sharing it with us. Presumably, no you wouldn't part with it. But um, uh, well, funnily enough, I, I always think that um, I will save it and give it to Johnny Reynolds' daughter. Oh, well, yeah, oh, that's and, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Can I just have a look at the condition? Sorry again. Yeah. Is so it, this is the outside. The inside is in good condition. Yeah. It was. It, um, but yeah, the inside, and then you pull back this bit to get to the powder. Yeah, and it's got a lovely mirror. The mirror, it's oh, got the that, mirror is good. It's got yeah. that lovely beveled edge to it. Yeah, yeah it's not. Nice. Yeah, it is. It's the mirror nice. is really nice. Yeah. And it's yeah. so worn on the outside. It was obviously something she carried all yeah. the time. It's like a real. Yeah, and then real you, thing. you open it up, and that's where the powder pack. Yeah, yeah, and you very, put in. you're very lucky yeah. that's no longer in there. We often yeah. open them, and they're still full of powder. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and you, you smell like an old lady for the next day. <laughs> Uh, I, Jess, I like that. Jess, thank you for sending that uh, for, for joining us to show us. Well, that's uh, Jess Phillips, the Labour MP. I think we've got another. We've got Paul. It's Paul on the line. Paul, are you there? Morning, Matt. Uh, Paul, what have you got? Well, I've got a bag of Kalitsi crisps. A bag of crisps. Uh, right, let's have a look. <laughs> Well, they've got Nick Clegg's face on the front, and can you see those there? Uh, uh, go, go the other way. That's it. That's it. There we are. So Paul, Paul is a Times Radio listener who's got in touch. He's wow. got, they're called Real Election Hand-Cooked Sea Salt Politicrisps. 
Uh, this is from 20... I, I remember being sent some of these. Was this 2010 <laughs> or 2015? 2010, Matt, and the best before date is 17th of July, 2010. <laughs> <sighs> Thomas, can you put a value on such an item? I think, I think that says it all, really, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, best before... Nick, Nick Clegg, best before... Uh, but, yeah, 2010. I think the only good thing which has come out of that sort of political alliance is I once read a, a cooking uh, article from his wife, who's Spanish, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. And she told me how to do a proper tortilla. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, so really, oh, yeah, with these chips just, here... Yes, exactly. With these, you know, with these uh, crisps here, I think we're looking at, you know, no more than 10 to 20 pounds. 10 to 20 pounds. I you, reckon I could get 10 to 20 pounds at an auction for them. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I paid... No, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Would you ever part with them, Paul? I'd never part with the map. <laughs> Seth, thank you so much for bringing that in. I suggest you leave, otherwise I'm going to try and nick it, because that is brilliant, your uh, classic. I'll be honest, Paul, you can keep your crisps. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, thanks for coming on there. Did you buy them, or were you sent them, those crisps? No, I work for um, a PR company in, in uh, London. And see. We, yeah, you get the odd big box of things that uh, a company wants you to probably talk up yeah. um, on their behalf. So, no, I, I didn't buy them. You no, didn't buy so them. I, th I remember us being sent them in the press gallery, those crisps. They've been doing it for all, they were all, the, all the different party leaders. And if you want to boast about things that you've got in your loft of a political nature, then you can email me, matt at times.radio. It'd be nice to hear from me. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.